The Ambitious Radio Network. Conversations with ambitious entrepreneurs and thought leaders. Are you an entrepreneur, startup junkie, or just someone interested in improving their leadership skills? If you're looking to be motivated, inspired, and uncover what it takes to get to the next level, listening to Ambitious Radio will be well worth the investment of your time. We have weekly engaging conversations with today's most influential thought leaders and entrepreneurs as they discuss their successes, failures, tipping points, and other priceless information that you can apply immediately after listening. Now, here's your host, Doug Parker. All right, welcome back to the Ambitious Radio Network. This is your host, Doug Parker, and today we've got another exciting guest. Today we've got Lee Kelleher with us, and Lee is the CEO of Double Forte PR and Digital Marketing. She's known for her practical solutions to big problems. Lee is also the author of Millennials and Management based upon her experience of failing and then succeeding at retaining millennials, and I'm sure all of us could use that, especially in this day and age. And she's got a new book that's coming out called The Boomerang Principle that we published in April of 2017. Welcome to the show, Lee. How are you? I'm great, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. I so appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Well, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, what did I leave out in the intro? I know it was a little business there, but <laughs> tell me about your person. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Sure. I grew up on the East Coast, actually, uh, in the Boston area, and then in Providence, where I went to high school. Um, and then I went to college in Minnesota because I felt that uh, I should get out of New England because New England is very provincial. As we know, all of our areas of the country are very provincial. And I decided that I should probably get out of where I, where I knew and I should go somewhere else. I ended up in Minnesota at Carleton College, which is in Northfield, and um, went in as a pre-med and came out with a degree in medieval history, <laughs> not a pre-med. There you go. There you go. So, so there's some pre, some pre. I mean, some uh, uh, some middle medieval time uh, medical stuff, huh? Uh, <laughs> Not so much. Well, you know, well, we could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> It will not bore you with all that. Um, yeah, and then I moved back to Boston to get into public relations, and um, that has been my career since college, which, um, God, it sounds boring. But I went back to Boston and started my career in public relations. And um, after a few years, um, there was this year, I guess I was 27, 28, and all of my friends left the area. They either got married or they went back to school. They moved across country for jobs. And all I knew was working. And I was working all the time, really not seeing the sun. And I went to the doctor who said, this was before sun sensitivity had a name. I don't even know what the name is. But he said, you're just depressed because you're not getting enough you know, sun. What you should do, Lee, is go into a tanning booth every day for the month of February. I was like, I'm Irish. I can't go into a sun tanning booth. I would be a French fry. So um, I decided to move to California where the sun is. And first I moved to Los Angeles where I uh, lived at the beach, which was a lot of fun. And I worked at an agency in Century City. Um, And then I got recruited um, to one of my clients, um, Sega of America, the video game company. And I moved from... Uh, Southern California to Northern California to the San Francisco area and worked for Sega for five years, um, launched several platforms. It was an awesome job. What a great company. Learned so much. And then I decided to leave there and started an agency for Interpublic, which is uh, one of the largest 
uh, media holding companies in the world. And then I started my own company in 2002 and I've done this ever since. Cool. That is me in a nutshell. Well, hey, you know, and there's a couple of things I want to highlight there because there, there's, you know, you talk about this sun sensitivity and, mm-hmm. you know, I literally just now today, I, I went to a Chick-fil-A, not that they're, uh, I'm not endorsing them or anything, but I do love me some Chick-fil-A, <laughs> but I literally <laughs> opened the sunroof on my vehicle. I rolled the windows down because the sun is shining here in Texas, you know, yeah. and it's, it was very nice and just absorbed a little sun because like you, you know, I work, you know, like a maniac, you know, probably 80, uh-huh. 90 hours a week. And if you're just getting these fluorescent lights, it, it, uh. it, it it's not good for you. It is not good for you. I mean, really not good for you. In fact, my company is moving in a couple of months, and we are spending the extra money not to have the fluorescent light over our heads because people are getting migraines, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we spend our time in front of computer screens. And anyway, the sun makes a big difference in the day for sure. Absolutely. Well, and and in addition to that, you know, one of the things, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not giving any kind of uh, medical advice, (laughs) so I'll put that little disclosure out there. But I've heard that like vitamin D, I think it's D3, is when, uh-huh. you're, when you're deficient in that, which is what you get from the sun. So I even take that as a supplement because I'm just trying to, you know, get the best balance because I can't sit outside all day long and uh, goof around or whatever. But uh, As do I, Doug. I take the same supplement, D3. Absolutely. There you have it. There you have it. Now, and Sega, <laughs> let's talk about that for a minute because I remember sure. when I was growing up, I mm-hmm. made the decision – in the very early days that I wanted to get a Sega whenever they came out in the 80s, I think it was. Yeah. And I did. You got a Genesis. You have a Genesis I, I think it was before Genesis, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I had one that had like a little a little shooting game and a motorcycle game was the one it came with. Yep. But it's when Nintendo came out. I went that way and all my friends went the Nintendo route. And in mm-hmm. the beginning, I think Nintendo kind of took off a little bit, and I was stuck with my little game, and it was the only one that I had, <laughs> and I couldn't trade with my friends or anything, the Super Mario Brothers and all that. But, um, right. but I will tell you that that I really enjoyed it. So, what was that like? Where I guess maybe you were there after probably that initial time. It was maybe yeah, the Genesis I, version. I got there in '94, and um, that was when we were launching the 32X, which was a 32-bit attachment to the Genesis, which is a 16-bit machine. Okay. Um, and um, was there through the Saturn launch and then um, planned the Dreamcast launch uh, for the company, but left before then because I knew that – we all knew that Dreamcast was not going to – was going to be very successful as a platform, but very detrimental to the bottom line for the company. Yeah. But it was – an amazing experience. You know, I worked, it was, you know, still is such a beloved brand. Sonic the Hedgehog is still recognized it's everywhere. And I, you know, this is a billion and a half dollar company in this country. And I was a vice president of communications there. And I ran all of communications, all of customer service, all events. And we were doing, we were sponsoring Super Bowl parties and all this kind of stuff. And we were doing so much stuff. And I learned so much there. Um, I think over the course of the four or five years I was there, I launched over 2,000 products. Um, we testified on Capitol Hill. We had, you know, we just had so much going on. It was a great, great experience. Um, worked my patootie off for sure. Um, but my career since then has really been based on the people I met at Sega. So um, I could not discount how important that that stint was um, in my career. Sure, absolutely. Well, l- let's talk a little bit about, you know, maybe through that process or leading up to kind of your, your company, some mm-hmm. of the obstacles that, that you ran into and then how you, you know, kind of uh, persevered through those. Sure. Uh, well, I was born. No. <laughs> 
that that's pretty difficult for all of us. Okay, that you you don't have the exclusive rights I to that survived. one. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think you know, being a woman in a Japanese company uh, in Silicon Valley in the '90s, you know, there are a lot of things stacked up against you there, frankly. So um, learning how to, you know, different cultures together, being in a very uh, male-dominated area, um, trying not, you know, not, and being a strong woman in the situation, right, and how you maneuver that. Hopefully I did it with some grace. I'm definitely not graceful, but, um, you know, I think, I think I did it pretty well. But it was definitely learning, and I def- it was challenging. Like sometimes I had to bite my tongue and say, actually, I'm not going to pour the tea. I'm actually the highest ranking person in this room. So um, you can pour the tea. Um, Hopefully I said it a little better than that, uh, but I probably wasn't thinking any better than that. Um, When I started my, uh, when I went to the interpublic companies, uh, started a company for them called Red Whistle, that was an amazing opportunity for me to start a company within a company. So I was able to create a brand. We grew from zero to $25 million in two and a half years. That was during the dot-com boom. And um, so I definitely had the wind at my back for that. Um, But I learned a ton about how to scale and how to choose clients and how not to choose clients and really more about what I wanted to do. Um, Fundamentally, I disagree with uh, service companies being publicly traded. And so many of them are because it's a very moment in time where you can serve the street and serve the client at the same time. Um, and that very much informed me when I was uh, decided to leave the company. Um, it was challenging at um, there. It was during the dot-com boom and then the bust. And um, the company was also had annealed with another company. So there was a lot of merging going on. And uh, everyone around me, this is 2001 now, everyone around me is losing their jobs. Like I was an executive vice president within Interpublic and a president of my small brand within all of the brands. And uh, all my peers are losing their jobs because it's 2001 and the world is shrinking in terms of opportunity for public relations in technology. And um, I'm, the, I'm the breadwinner in my family. My husband um, is the chief home officer. I am the chief bacon officer. He works part-time uh, and mostly we have a special needs son. We have an older son who is now 19 and a special needs son who is 16 now. And mostly my husband has been um, when my, uh, you know, the coordinator of all things kid. Uh, and he also worked part-time. So my husband's like, don't lose your job. Oh my God, no one's getting work 2001. You can't lose your job. Um, it wasn't very much fun. I was traveling around the country uh, laying people off, which is never fun. Um, and I wasn't able to really make all my the decisions that I thought were best for our business because we really did have to return to the street, um, which is where I really sort of got stuck with, oh gosh, I really don't think this is a great business model. But I had the I had to bring you know the bacon home as it were. Then um, the company was so generous to me. I really learned so much there. Great people there. But the company was very generous to me in this annealment process. They offered me seven different jobs, and uh, finally I took one. <laughs> I took one on September fourth, two thousand and one, and I flew home from New York. And a week later was September eleventh. And September 11th really solidified for me. Um, I did not, I was so lucky not to know, A, not to be on that plane because I had been in New York. I'd flown home from New York exactly a week before, number one. Number two, it hit me like, oh my gosh, it could have been me. Number three, it hit me, I don't really like what I'm doing. 
And um, if I'm going to be traveling all over the country and the world, and I have these two, at the time, two young children, an infant and a three-year-old or four-year-old, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. And it really crystallized for me how I wanted to spend my time. So I, uh, you know, gave my resignation, gave them the, you know, ex- exercise my contract, and I was going to take a year off. I'd never taken a year off. I'd never really taken time off. And like I said, my second son has special needs. And we're just sort of figuring that out. He was 11 months old at the time. And I thought that I would spend a year, you know, being with my infant and my three-year-old and thinking about what was next and all this kind of stuff. Well, I drove my husband crazy. So, (laughs) and that's basically the bottom line. There's a lot of things that happened, but I drove my husband crazy because I was spending a lot of time with my kids. I was spending two hours a day at yoga and a person like yourself or myself who's working 80, 90 hours a week, that's a lot of time we have still left. And I had an immaculate house. My house was pristine. I had color-coded closets. I had a laundry system. I I mean, I was lady who lunched. I mean, I was doing all this stuff. But basically, my sock program, my my single sock eradication program drove my husband over the edge. And he said, you know, if you don't go back to work, we're not going to make it. And I sat, sat down like, okay, I'm a little nuts about these single socks. And I decided to start looking for work again way before my one year. Um, and I was just, I really didn't want to go back to, like I said, to the publicly traded agency world um, because of what I said. And I was looking at jobs much like the one I had had at Sega. Um, and I was sort of down that path when my mother um, got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Mm. And she and my dad lived in Wisconsin at the time. And we lived in San Francisco. And um, I dropped everything that day. And I got, I mean, she, my dad and my mom called at, in the morning. And I was on a plane by 1.30. And I was in Wisconsin by 10 o'clock p.m. that day. And uh, it was very clear to me at that moment um, that I was going to have to pull myself out of those job, um, those two jobs that I was up for. I mean, I was really, you know, deciding between the two because I was not going to be able to do those jobs and be with my mother in, um, in her last days. She was given four months to live. So I pulled myself out of those jobs and, and said, okay, I'm going to be with my mom. My mom ended up living four years instead of four months, which was a huge gift of time. And it was an amazing thing um, that she persevered through that. And she fought and um, just an amazing story, which that's another podcast. Um, so I decided, oh, I'm gonna, I'm the one. I have two sisters, but I'm the one who had the most uh, capacity. I'm the one who had the most flexibility. So I decided to start my company out of that need to bring home the bacon, but also be able to do what I needed to do in life vis-a-vis my children, my family, my husband, my and what I wanted to do in the world, which was to actually not just you know make a buck, but actually make a difference. So. I started my company um, in 2002 with my friend Dan, um, and our goal was to get home at six o'clock on Fridays, which we had really never done in our careers, and to work with people and companies who were doing really positive things in their categories, and not to work with jerks. And 15 years later, um, we have, I don't know, 35, 36 people. We're here in San Francisco and in New York and Boston. And um, we still do that. We still work with companies that are doing great things in their categories who aren't jerks. Dan has left the company. Um, He wanted to go do something much larger, and I really don't want to be in a large company anymore. And, um, And, of course, our business has changed dramatically since 2002. Facebook didn't exist. 
Twitter doesn't exist. I mean, all these things that we take for granted today in the work of public relations and influence relations and media relations uh, didn't exist. So through the time we started the company to now, we've probably been through, we're at our fourth iteration in terms of uh, really what Double Forte stands for, but um, and what the work that we do, but the 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 impact that we have um, with our clients remains the same over that time. Cool. That is a long story. Sorry about that. No, no, no. That's <laughs> hey, no, no worries at all. And you know what we typically do is you know we'll we'll do the the segments of the show that we can do on the radio, and then we'll kind of do the uncut version when they tune into the podcast. So you know we've got a good breaking point uh, a few minutes ago. So no no worries at all. I want to hear your stories because they're they're really great info and you know there's one other thing i wanted to kind of hit on that you mentioned so yeah. you talked about especially with pr so you talked about facebook and you know all the you know social media that's out there but can you just elaborate maybe in a maybe one or two minutes of you know two or three things that make that a positive that you can use and leverage those things and then two or three things that maybe are negative about having facebook and twitter that that can yeah. be problematic so I think the you know the change in communication um, in business and in personal lives um, has been so dramatic in the last ten years, right? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Snapchat, Pinterest. I could go on. There's so many that we don't even talk about, and there's been a lot of advantages to that, right? The big advantages is are that companies can get much closer to their customers than they ever could before. Um, in the past, public relations was really media relations. The purpose of a public relations firm was actually to talk to the media who were then going to talk to their readers, right, the customers. And with social media, it's really been the disintermediation of um, journalism, which has a plus and a minus, um, and, co and companies are so much closer to their uh, customers today and their consumers through social media. The benefit of that is that uh, is manyfold. Um, one, they're getting much better feedback, uh, much faster feedback. It's almost impossible to keep up with the consumer feedback in a rational way. Um, and really moving to satisfy market needs much quicker. Uh, on the activist side, you know, now companies are dealing with many more activist consumers, activist investors than they've ever had to do in the past because they have direct access and because everybody in their hand has the potential to create a movement, right? A potential to, um, to take fire, frankly, on something that they feel passionate about by using a good hashtag. Um, a couple examples of that are um, grab your wallet, which is very, you know, it's huge right now. And it was really this woman who um, doesn't particularly like what's going on in the administration right now. And she's and her her thought process was, you know, just don't buy anything with the brand associated with the president on it. And she created this hashtag grab your wallet. And all of a sudden, you know, companies all over the country are either defending their their choice to keep those brands in the market in their place or stripping those brands out of the place and dealing with people who are happy about it and people who are not happy about the decisions this this frankly could never have happened so fast or so or so furiously uh, without social media and that's a lot of power in the consumer's hand the negative part of it is uh, a fewfold one is um you got. We're definitely in a blended world. We're in a paper world and a in a virtual world. We're um, and how you serve a consumer base that goes from a five year old to a hundred year old 
you know, it is not monolithic. It used to be monolithic. It is not monolithic anymore. Um, and it's very, um, it's very time consuming and confusing. Um, and people, I think, uh, tend to do too many things instead of choosing the things that really matter uh, to their constituency. So it is exciting, but you don't want to be so far out there on the edge that you're bug splat, right? And you're chasing all the shiny objects that most most of the shiny objects, and I've been in Silicon Valley now for almost, a little more than 20, 20 years. A lot of shiny objects here do not ever sort of get out of their box and um, becoming discerning about which ones to chase and which ones to wait on is part of the game. Sure. Well, and it actually kind of reminds me when you're talking about those things on back on episode 32, we had uh, Jay Bear on the show and he's mm-hmm. got a book called Hug Your Haters. I don't know if you're familiar with yep, him or not. I am. But yep. it, it was it was when I read the book, I was like, I got to get this guy on the show. I mean, it, it's it's so unbelievable the voices that that folks have in the good old days, as they call them. You know, people would call you, and if they had a complaint, they would you know have to pick up the phone and call you and leave a message and tell you, and you'd have to call them back and whatever. Now they don't even give you the courtesy sometimes to do that. They'll just go and yeah. blast you wide mm-hmm. open on all kinds of social media and you may or may not even know who they are. They may just put it on some exactly. chat room and you can't even correct it. So when yeah. they give you feedback, you, you better take it and you better uh, do something with it. And, and obviously, you know, like you had alluded to, uh, that's kind of one of the changes, you know, PR is not just uh, like it used to be where you would communicate things to the, the media that was controlled mm-hmm. by the, the big media people. It's mm-hmm. it's getting the message out there, so that's that's really you know great information, a good place for us to kind of transition into the next segment. So we'll take a, a quick break, and then you know right after this, we'll hear more from Lee as she talks about her career pursuits and some of the experiences that she's gone through right here in the Ambitious Radio Network. Did you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God or what they say? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers, and if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. This is Kelly Shackelford, president of First Liberty. We're the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. We've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to the local schools. Visit firstliberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's firstliberty.org. All right, we're back on the Ambitious Radio Network, and I'm just getting a ton of great information. I've, I've written down <laughs> golden nuggets like crazy, so I'm, I'm appreciative of it. Uh, so we've got Lee Carraher, uh, Carraher here with us, and uh, you know I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the the things that you're talking about, and I'm, I'm I'm anxious to hear you know more about you know I know you talked about the millennial. You wrote a book about it, Millennials and Management. Yep. And uh-huh. that's a struggle because I didn't grow up in this millennial age. I, I grew up in, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And what I've seen is most of the millennials, they they want to not work as much. They just want like, you know, quality of life in a different environment. So give me a couple of highlights on that book and, and tell me kind of <laughs> what, what it's all about and how you found out how to bridge the gap. Yeah. 
So in 2009, after the big meltdown in the economy, when I started the company, we only hired people with 10 years of experience. So by definition, they're about 30, 32 years old. And um, in 2009, uh, after everything melted down in the economy, you know, I, my point of view is, um, having been through many meltdowns, in the, you know, in different bubbles, that a bit you should, if your business experiences any sort of meltdown, it could be a small meltdown where you lose half your revenue from a, that's not small, but it, you know, in the, in the scheme of life, you know, you could lose half your revenue for something or your, your local economy, something happens or the national economy or the world economy, you know, when, whatever the economies you are living in change, you need to examine your business model because most likely the business model that got you to that point where something broke is not the business model that's going to take you into the future. So we were examining our business model and because we were dependent on people who had 10 years of experience, one, they're much more expensive than college, college graduates, recent college graduates. And two, what we realized in San Francisco was that we were going to have a big donut hole where there would be no people with 10 years of experience for about five years. Because between 2000, the year 2000 and 2004, almost nobody got hired in San Francisco in my business during that um, really, you know, it was a crater here. 80,000 people, professionals and their families left San Francisco Bay Area between 2000 and 2002. Mm. So there's almost nobody here who's gonna have 10 years, a big donut hole of you know talent missing. So like, oh gosh, and you always need to be bringing people in from the bottom. Whatever the bottom is in terms of the qualifications you require in your company, you always need to be bringing people from the bottom in all the time. So we decided we needed to hire um, short, short people. Short, only short people. We all had to hire <laughs> younger people, oh my goodness. Okay, sorry. Uh, we had to we had to start hiring younger people, and I really thought nothing of this because at my previous two jobs, I'd had over 800 people and over 700 people, and most of them were under 30. And I was had a great reputation for hiring young people and keeping them and and advancing their careers. Well, that was not the case <laughs> in 2010 and 11 when we finally got around to hiring more you know people uh, who were under 20 six or seven years old. And in 2011, uh, we had hired six millennials who were all gone within eight weeks of each other and they were all gone within three months. And I had never had a hundred percent failure in recruiting in my whole career. And one person could be their problem. You know, you can make one bad hire out of six. I've made, of course I've made bad hires, but not six at a time. So I decided, okay, one could be their problem, but six has got to be something about us. What do we do wrong? What is going on here that six people didn't make it even three months in our company? Um, it was really a body blow to me. I took it very personally, which is my nature. But, you know, and then I immediately moved to, well, what the hell just happened? I have to fix it. So I started researching and I found out what a millennial was, even though it existed, because uh, before I researched it. And then everything was so negative. Millennials are entitled. Millennials are lazy. Millennials is millennial. Everyone is so negative about millennials. And my point of view is an entire generation cannot be entitled. It's statistically impossible that 80 million people are entitled and are lazy. Um, but uh, there's definitely a difference in perception and reality. And so I'm I, not with the purpose of writing a book, but I set out to understand it. And I just so we could fix our company. I mean, my little baby company, I was like, we got to fix this. You know, a, co a company without millennials is a company without a future. So um, 
did a lot of research, interviewed tons of people, and um, through some trial and error, we figured out what works and what kept people in their seats, how we recruited better, how we brought people on board, and how they stayed with us over time. In San Francisco in 2014 and 15, the average tenure for a millennial under 30 years old was about um, 18 months. Well, that's a, that's so expensive. <laughs> Uh, from a business perspective, you know, barely get someone up to speed in eight months, frankly. Um, and if they're going to leave you, you've just, you really, you're not, you're just turning over money if you have people leave um, of their own volition uh, in 18 months. So my goal was to double it up. I said, my goal is to keep everybody in their, in the company twice as long as they think they're going to stay. Because if I can keep someone here 36 months instead of 18 months, a, I've, I've saved at least double their salary from recruiting and losing and all that kind of stuff. And B, we've created a, an environment where people would want to stay and that would um, create some goodwill and become a business generator for us. Um, I started talking about it and people, we started hiring and not losing anybody with this application of what we learned and um, someone asked me to write a book. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know how useful that will be. And then someone else called and said, please, just please share your stuff in a book. I just want to give this, but I don't have a book. And in the end, I was talking to a publisher about something totally different. And she said, I will publish that book. And I'm like, what book are you talking about? And um, books don't really fall into author's laps. And this one did. And so I set out to share what we learned the very hard way in my book, Millennials and Management, where we sort of look at the primary myths about, and I call them myths, but the primary themes, the negative themes about millennials and explore them to see A, where they come from, B, how re real they are, and C, how you move forward from them. And that's what my book does. Gotcha. No, that, and that's great information. And I love what you said about a company without millennials is a company without a future because there's yep. a lot of people that just want to run from, you know, those folks that they, they are perceived entitled and they don't work hard or lazy, whatever. And, yep. you know, that's a pretty big generation to, to have a gap on each side of that. You only have yeah. either the really old, you know, or the really young. And that's a, that's well, a tough deal. I don't, well, the millennials is the largest generation we have right now in the American, right? We have 80 million millennials. We have 78 million boomers. We have 45 million Xers. Uh, Z's, um, the generation Z is now, um, people under the age of 16 is how Pew research does it. I just use Pew as the, as my source because it's just easier that way. Mm -hmm. So millennials are going nowhere. This is 80 million people. Well, they're going to be running the place pretty soon. And for boomers who are hanging on to their jobs and there are lots of them and we see, and it may not be true where you are, um, it may not be true where you are, Doug, but here we see that um, there's a lot of ageism in the technology world and people hanging onto their jobs past 50s and men finding jobs after 50s, very hard here because there's so many young people in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has been such a young thing always. And uh, most boomers, and I'm a boomer, so I feel and I've researched this a lot, but most boomers are not ready for their retirement cannot leave the jobs that they thought they'd be able to leave when they thought they'd be able to leave them. And 2008 really just solidified that, right? We, I interviewed um, lots and lots and lots of people who were in their 60s who had planned to retire between 2008 or 2009 and are still working today trying to make it up what they lost, right? 
So we have, um, I think a lot of this negativity comes from our own disappointment in the reality of our own existences vis-a-vis what we expected, right? Because boomers grew up in a, in a time where the economy could ac- accommodate us in general, right? In general, the economy was growing so much in that 25 years where boomers were coming into the workplace, they could just accommodate 78 million people. Never happened in the world uh, what happened in our economy for those 25 years. Um, and we should not expect it to return, frankly. Um, and if a business is counting on that to return, then it's a business that you know, is making some bad decisions. So we have people who can't leave work, right, who wish they couldn't, didn't have to be there. We have a, a, a tsunami of young people coming into the workplace who want to work, but want to work very differently than um, the boomers do. And then we have the Xers in the middle, the smallest generation that's working right now, who are hitting, you know, the oldest uh, Gen Xer this year is 52, right? So they're middle-aged um, and they're not enough of them. There are not enough of Gen Xers to take the leadership positions that boomers had. Um, so it's just very, there's a lot going on in the disgruntlement around millennials that has nothing really to do with millennials. It has to do with us. Mm, that's good. That's real good. You know, one of the things that I've got a, a 20, uh, let's see, my son will be 22 here and actually, my goodness gracious, in about nine days. And then my daughter is 20. It's time to get a present. Oh, my goodness. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so um, so anyway, uh, but yeah, so, so I've got kids that are in an age, and, and I've told my kids this often. I said, hey, look, I would love, but who wouldn't love to be 20 years younger in general? But I would love yeah. to be y'all's age, know what I know now, and compete against these millennials. I would smoke all you people. But, you know, my my daughter, you know, she she kind of gets gets some of that. But the the frustration is, and she's experienced a little bit of it, even at twenty. She she uh, works at Nordstrom and one of their flagship stores. And the problem is, is that eventually you wind up managing who you're working with, and then you have the same problems that Dad has. But exactly. uh, so I'm have to get her this book because I'm telling you, it sounds like there's some really good meat, you know, that that you can yeah. learn from because there's no way around it. You can try to avoid it. But you're you're handicapping yourself, you know, if, if you don't find a way to, to work with it. You and are. Just, you're, you're absolutely. That's an excellent way of saying it, Doug. You're totally handicapping yourself if you can't find a way forward. Because um, a lot of, you know, millennials work differently than we do. They are used to having the power to connect with anybody on the planet and get any information they want, or, or at least a perception of anybody on the planet and the perception of any information they want in their hands. They've got more power in their hands than it went to the moon. And we never, you know, the what the advantage of that is. There are many advantages. There are many disadvantages of that. You know, we could talk about that for ever in a day. But the advantage of it is that um, they see they connect dots that we don't connect. And sometimes they connect them too quickly, and it's not very deep. At the same time, um, millennials also believe that they can lead and expect to lead from any seat in the boat, right? Um, and they imagine they're coming in and out of the leadership role all the time. Millennials are very gener- um, very we-oriented. A lot of the time you hear the millennials are, you know, me, me, me generation. My experience is that millennials are very we generation. And the, one of the biggest things I learned in managing, I really don't like that word, but leading millennials is, you know, when I was coming into the workplace, if someone said to me, Lee, you are not living up your, to your potential, it would have been crushing I mean, that was generally what you'd heard in leadership. You're not living up to your potential. We think you can do so much more, blah, 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 blah. And it was motivating. 
if you say in general, if you say that to a millennial today, they could give a flying whatever, right, about what you think about their potential because they have a lot of confidence in their potential. Mm -hmm. However, if you say you let the team down because you dropped the ball, you get a millennial in the corner, in the fetal position going, I'll never do it again. And I, I mean it, right, because they're um, – their social structure is very different from the boomers, which is very, uh, the boomers grew up in a hierarchical situation. Uh, hierarchy is antithetical to the millennial experience who can like get to anybody they want at any time. It's very flat. So if you talk about you let the team down by dropping the ball and all these other people had to change their lives because you screwed up, it never happens again. So, you know, you got to find the ways to um, do it. And my book really is, to me, read by teams. It's not it's not a management book where you're going to change your language. It's really meant to be met, read by anybody in a team. And every chapter at the end has, you know, um, management do's and don'ts and millennial do's and don'ts because um, it's about collaborating to get to a better place. You can't count on one cohort to make it better for the other. Gotcha. Now, as as we kind of wrap up this segment, I do have maybe one or two more questions, but primarily, um, let me ask you this. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing at any point during your life, what would yeah. it be? And, and what time of your life, what were you doing at that time? If I could go back and tell myself anything, I would tell myself not to get that perm, because that was terrible. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would tell myself to um, just be myself. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I think, um, uh, you know, we're all a little quirky. <laughs> There's nobody who's really mainstream. We're all a little quirky in our way, own ways. And, you know, I think we become more valuable in business and in life the more comfortable we are in our skins. And because we just sort of shed all the anxiety and all the effort around fitting in, right? Um, and we, if we can all just be ourselves, um, there's a lot more pleasure in the day and there's a lot less, um, inefficiency around, and just to be totally tactical about it, there's a lot, a lot of inefficiency around being comfortable in your skin than the inefficiency of, you know, spending energy on things that really don't matter. You know, and I would tell myself that around age 26. Got it. Got it. Well, that's, you know, that's great information <laughs> really for anybody. It, it truly is. Cause we can waste a whole bunch of emotional, um, you know, time and, and just, uh, uh, you know, collateral on just going through dealing with that kind of stuff. So that's so true. That's really, really good. So we'll, we'll wrap up this segment. That was great stuff for our ambitious listeners. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to be updated on new guests that are coming on, you can text the word ambitious. That's A-M-B-I-T-I-O-U-S to 69922. Standard messaging rates do apply, so we'll see the website for full details. And next, we'll be talking more with Lee about the ambitious things that she's doing now. What's next? Right here on the Ambitious Radio Network. Are you tired of paying too much for electricity from the former monopolies and getting terrible customer service? Do you really even know how much you're paying per kilowatt? Sometimes they quote you a lower rate, but then add back in the delivery charge. Ugh, how frustrating. Go to electricity.guru, that's right, .guru, for your free analysis. Who knows, with just a few referrals, you could actually earn free electricity. If you're tired of paying outrageous electricity bills, do something about it. Would you like to get a significant discount or even get free electricity? Go to electricity.guru and compare our rates to what you're currently paying. 
many of our clients are saving anywhere from 15 to 20%. We also have a referral program that allows you to earn free electricity. Yes, free electricity. And you cannot beat free cents per kilowatt. Award demanding service, competitive rates, and low deposits, if even required. Go to electricity.guru for more details. That's electricity.guru. We offer free energy credits to customers who refer and activate 15 or more qualified customers to our electricity service and are not passing on their bill. To get your free energy credit, your customers must be referred through the free customer gathering website. See electricity.guru for more details. All right, we're back on the Ambitious Radio Network, and I'll tell you what, these answers are fantastic. We're getting tons of content, and if you are tuning in on the radio right now, you are missing out on a couple of nuggets, I promise you. So you do want to tune into the show after the show where you can hear the whole uncut version, because Lee is bringing it, I'm telling you right now, how to work with the millennials, what to do, how to how to push, pull, how to say things just a, just a little bit differently, and it does make a, a huge difference. Uh, so so let's let's jump in real quick. I know we've talked about kind of what you're working on now. We've talked about your your book, but let's talk about what's next. How do you go through that transition? I know you said that you weren't really you know, wanting to write a book, but then you kind of got dropped in your lap a couple times. But now here you are fixing to release another book, and it's yeah. called the Boomerang Principle. So tell us about that project and how sure. you started it. Yeah. So the boomerang principle—it's um, called the boomerang principle. The 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 essential. I'm screwing up my books. The boomerang principle: how to inspire lifetime loyalty from your employees. And this book is about how to shift your mindset to work with the current and the future workforce around loyalty. There is so much negativity around loyalty in the workplace, and it really does. Um, there's a lot about millennials there because um, when I was interviewing people and I was being interviewed for by people for my first book, Millennials in Management, you know, I had so many comments. I, they're so not loyal. They're not loyal. So why would I spend any time educating them and showing them what the ropes if they're just going to leave me? I heard that over and over and over again, sort of the whole you're dead to me concept, right? And frankly, if your employees are dead to you after they leave you, you are spending way too much time looking for new ones because uh, you're killing yourself uh, because the culture, we've moved the culture along in this. And um, so what I set out to do is show people how to um, create environments and cultures that people want to come back to because if a culture is something good to come back to, it is hard to leave. And if you can, again, same same theme, if you can keep good people in your company longer than they think they want to stay when they start, you have saved money and you have made more profit and you've created an environment that is valuable. And I think for high performers in any category, the talent, um, the war on talent to get the best people into your organizations is only going to increase. It is not going to get easier just because there are 80 million millennials coming onto the scene. Um, and the culture of return is a culture of stay for high and a culture of very high performance, which is where we all need to be. So that's this book is all about that. You know, and that's so important, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, one of the things that you hate to see, I mean, every once in a while there's an employee that leaves that you're glad to see them leave. But mm-hmm. but most of the time it's it's someone that's been recruited, picked off, they're going somewhere else, and you know it's it's frustrating. You can talk yourself into saying, well, you know, hey, they did this and this and this, you know, wrong, and just cause, so you can somehow justify it in your mind. Yeah. But you, like you said, it costs so much money to get somebody ramped back up to speed. Maybe it's you know seven eight months before they're really back to a break even. Minimum. Yeah, even if they're a pretty talented Minimum. person to begin with. Yeah. 
And so that that makes a that makes a huge difference. Now, um, you know, let, let's let's transition just a little bit because I know you you know we've talked a lot about uh, the employees and the millennials, but let's talk about you know how you got to that point. Let's talk about mentoring. Sure. Let's talk about uh, who you look up to and who you follow. Well, let me talk first about how I got to that point on the boomerang principle. It's okay. really happened in 2000 when uh, the, boom, the economy was booming. I had all these people. My company went from zero to $25 million in 18 months. I mean, that was fast, right? Mm-hmm. It's for people. And it was brutal. People were being recruited and picked off, like you said, all the time. And we were expected to counter you know, just to keep the butts in the seats. And I woke up one day, I'm like, it's exhausting. I'm like exhausted by this. And I just woke up and said, you know what? I'm not going to counter anymore. I'm going to go against corporate mandate. I'm not going to counter anymore. And then I didn't even get to tell my leadership team what we were doing. And the next day, someone walked into my office and said, I got a job here and I'm going to leave. And I said, good luck. (laughs) And that is not what he was expecting. He was expecting me to say, and here's an extra $10,000. And I didn't say it. And he was pissed. He was like, you're not going to counter? I'm like, no, I'm done countering. But you countered Joe last week. I'm like, yep. And that was the last one I did. And I really, you know, and first of all, I felt so much better. I Like, I think I grew three inches just by doing that. And then <laughs> he was mad. I mean, he left my office going, she's not going to counter me. And of course, that meant everybody in the office knew he was coming in to get see how much money he'd get out of me, right? And um, I just stayed in my office for a while. But at the end of the day, after he had left, I came out. Everyone started looking at me like, what happened to her? And I said, let's have a meeting. And I said, okay, you know, so this young man came in the office and he told me he was leaving. And he asked me to counter. And I said, no, I am done countering. From now on, we're going to spend all of our attention, all of our energy working on the people who are here, not the people who have already stepped out of the office halfway because they're looking for a new job. And the smiles on people's face, the relief people felt um, was amazing. And people stopped leaving. People stopped leaving when I stopped countering. So that's really been um, a business pr- principle for me since 2000. Yeah, 2000. Um, and in my company today, uh, we're 30, uh, 36 people today. And seven people are returners, are boomerangs, have come back to me. Um, cause I never counter when someone leaves, when you hire someone, you know, they're going to leave you. It should not be a surprise that someone's going to leave you, right? They're going to leave. The question is how you keep them and you keep them by knowing what they want to do by making sure that your culture is something that's worthwhile and by maintaining a very high performance standard and supporting those people reaching it. Um, and I could, you know, there's a lot there. Um, so I'm sorry I went back a little bit for you, Doug, but that oh, no, was no, really I'm, important for me to share. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. I mean, like I said, I always make notes all the way through the shows, but I mean, I'm already up to like point number 20 uh, of just stuff I'm <laughs> writing down. So um, I've got to put them in some kind of bite size enough to, to text yeah. them out and Facebook them and stuff, but they are really good. And, you know, when you hire someone, you know, you know that they're going to leave. You, you know that in the you beginning, do. but like you said, trying to find ways to – uh, boomerang them, which is really where that the, the title comes back. You know, where you've created yeah. an environment where they, um, if they're dead to you, you lose that. But I've seen it before when you bring back a former employee that was a you know pretty decent employee to begin with. 
there's no 18-month, you know, ramp, or eight-month no. ramp up. That's like they just sit down in a seat and they're productive instantaneously. And they're productive. And um, the, the goodwill that you have, there's lots of things, right? So one, they left you and they learned something. So you're going to benefit from them, whatever their experience was when they were out somewhere else. And they return to your company. You're going to benefit from whatever that experience is, number one. Number two, you know, they are validating your proposition for employees, they're validating by returning. And that is great news for everybody who's already there, who's thinking, hmm, maybe it'll be better somewhere else. And someone returns and goes, it's not that great out there, people. You know, <laughs> and it really does create a virtuous circle that way. And in terms of onboarding, you know, yes, you have to onboard in a different way than uh, people who are new to you. But the speed at which they become fully functional is you know maybe 30 days, not nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a win-win-win all the way around. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm glad we spent a little extra time on that. So let's let's jump in this. You know, the next couple of minutes, let's let's talk about that mentoring piece because obviously, yeah. I, and I can tell you're super bright and, and you're you're you know you yeah. kind of like a you know building airplanes on the way down and figuring stuff out. <laughs> oh my goodness! But but you know you you got to be getting information from somewhere. So are there people that you look up to that that are mentoring or you're following or how does that work for you? Absolutely, I do have a couple mentors that um, I have a mastermind group that I meet with um, every Friday for an hour. Um, we're, we've been together for about two years and that's been hugely valuable. I'm part of, uh, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs organization, which is the YPO for entrepreneurs. And that is super, super helpful. It's all peers who own and have started their own entities in terms of people I'm following. Um, lots of people, I mean, I am a voracious reader. I think the best leaders are the ones who are constantly learning, you know, what you're doing, Doug, in terms of sharing these people's stories and asking these questions, you know, we're all getting better by listening to the questions, the answers, right? We're just, oh, there's a nugget I could use. There's a nugget I could use. Um, so Daniel Goldman's work, Tom Rath's work, um, Dory Clark's work, um, this is all, these are all books. Um, so Daniel Goldman is, um, primal leadership and emotional intelligence. And Dan, um, Tom Rath was, is fully charged and um, strength finders and Dory Clark is stand out. Um, Whitney Johnson, disrupt yourself. These kinds of people um, have a lot of impact on me. And I tried to Sean Murphy on the optimistic workplace, you know, these kinds, Andy Kramer. I mean, I could go on for days, Andy Kramer on breaking through bias. So I'm just, I look for people who are solving problems, uh, not just pontificating. And those are the kind of people that um, really influence my day. You know that's that's great information and and you know listeners if you're if you're driving down the road right now go back and reference the show notes because we'll put links to all these different books and what I always like to hear is you know there's always these these uh, books that are out there think and grow rich you know um, how to win mm-hmm. friends and influence people whatever the case is but then there's also two or three new books that you hear that you've not heard before that give good information and so we'll put links to all that so you can go and check them out download them listen to them read them whatever whatever your preferred method of, of absorbing the information is and you know so so let's let's do this let's let's talk about a couple of more things because what's, mm-hmm. what's what's next for you because now you've gotten a couple books under your belt you've got the launch mm-hmm. that's coming up here in, in a few weeks but mm-hmm. have you thought do you want to continue to write books or is this just kind of a random situation <laughs> um, you know, what's, what's next for you? Well, I think, um, you know, my agency is doing really well and we, um, are, have expanded and done places and I really enjoy it still, but I don't anticipate being here forever. Um, 
you know, I think uh, there always comes a time and sort of thinking about out to five, six years, I, you know, six years from now, I probably won't be in the company, which my company knows we've talked about this out loud. Um, and this, uh, definitely on a mission though, my company has been on the mission since we started not to work with jerks. Right. I told you that earlier and, um, and to create a, a culture of value. And I'm definitely on a mission, you know, work does not have to be terrible. Work, you know, work is work. We should be working hard. We should, it doesn't mean we have to work forever, but uh, we should be working hard. And if we can um, cut through the crap, frankly, excuse my language, (laughs) to, you know, sort of get down to what really matters um, and, you know, eliminate the toxic and focus on positive, um, all this inefficiency that is in our workplace, it's all about people. You know, process matters, but it's really about people. Uh, people come to work, people who care about things, people who don't care about things, people who are hurting, people who are happy, you know, people come to work. And um, in this world where, you know, artificial intelligence is about to upend our economy, people are still are going to be the secret sauce that make things happen. And I'm really going to, I'm, you know, I've focused on this so far in my books, and I will continue to focus that on this, these things that help people um, work with people better because there's no reason for us to be miserable at work. Well, there's no question about that. And, and I think that's one of the main reasons too, why people leave, you know what I mean? They, they, mm-hmm. they're not happy at work and you know, they're, or they're not happy with their boss or, or whatever the, you know, whatever the case is. So that, that's, that really is, you know, good information. Now I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball, but oh, okay. um, so Ready. this one is just kind of off, off the cuff here, but okay. so what's something that you, uh, either really believe in or enjoy doing that maybe other people think is kind of crazy. <laughs> Something that I re- okay hmm that think people think is crazy. Well, I'm not that crazy. Uh, however, let's see. Um, I am a Jane Austen fan, and Pride and Prejudice, The Persuasion, and there is a whole body of um, of novels around Jane Austen fan fiction. And so people think I'm crazy. This is actually where my friends think I'm crazy because I read all of them. I read all of the variations on those books. Gotcha. Like gotcha. How, how many changes could there be? There's a lot of changes. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that. And everyone, my husband's like, looks at me like another one. I'm like, yeah, you watch television. I read books. Hey, you know what? And that's one of the things is just kind of breaking stuff down differently because we're talking a lot of business, a lot of serious stuff, but Hey, that's one of the things that's a little different about you. Now, let me ask you this. What's something maybe that over the last decade or more that mm-hmm. you've kind of changed your mind on, maybe you're diametrically opposed. You thought this way, a little more information, a little more maturity, something came along and now you're thinking, wait a minute, I think this way is the better way and it's totally opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely when I was younger, I thought just, uh, saying the answer and moving forward was the right way to go and people would just follow me along. And today I still find the answer really quickly, but, um, I have learned to listen loudly and listening is the number one skill you need to learn as an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs, either if they're quiet or they're loud, um, they have ideas and they move fast. That is the definition of an entrepreneur. They believe they can make it happen. And I may have come into this business because I needed to, not because I wanted to, but um, the entrepreneur in me moved really fast. And what I have learned over time is I'm much more effective the more I shut my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) The more I listen, you know, we are, um, and I I subscribe to um, high input, low democracy, you know, 
this is a high input, low democracy organization. And what I mean by that is we ask for people's input and then someone makes a decision and it may not reflect all the input. It's very hard to reflect all input, you know, um, you know, ask nine people how to screw in a light bulb, you get nine different answers. So it's very hard to reflect all the input. However, you can honor people's thoughts in your decision. Um, and when people are, you're listen, people are listened to by the person who's in charge, they respect you more. And the more respect you have from the people around you, the more effective you are. You know, it's it's really interesting how, as I'm interviewing you, there's there's a lot of interweaving spider webs of different things. So you, you talked about Young Entrepreneur Organization a minute ago, and I had Vern Harnish, which was the founder of YEO, on a while oh, back. Yeah. And, yep. and so, and then you're, you're talking about, you know, this, this, you know, listening a whole lot and the, the high input and low democracy. Last mm-hmm. week we had on the show Ari Weiswig out of uh, Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I've Ar- been there. I love that place. Oh, and hey, let me tell you this. And, so good. And, and I love, <laughs> I love everything about Zingerman's. And not just the products, but the business, the culture, the way it's run. If you, if you ever get a chance to go check out one of their seminars, I highly recommend it. They're always at Inc. and, and doing things there. But yeah. but Ari was talking about how they've got this thing called the Zingerman's Community of Businesses. And what they basically do is is that it's, it's not really truly an entity. It's just mm-hmm. like a group of all of the managing partners. They get together, but employees can come, and they actually get paid if they want to come. And they'll have a 16, 17-year-old busboy or waitress or whatever that'll come to the meeting, and they'll give input. It's like a global corporate meeting of all the companies, and mm-hmm. they have them weekly. And they just talk That's about wonderful. what's going on. And he said, hey, 16 and 17-year-olds, like, they know things that we don't know. <laughs> and it's so just, true. And, and so, like you said, I mean, hey, it's not that you're necessarily going to do everything they tell you to do, but at least you can hear their voice and take it into consideration when making your decision. I think I, my, I totally, that's so awesome. And, you know, you may not actually do what they tell you to do, but their voice will help shape your answer Mm. no matter what. If, you know, I wish, okay, I'm just going to say that for 99% of the people, their voice will help shape your answer. That's good. That's real good. That really is. Well, and after we tune in, after a brief word from our sponsors, we'll hear more from more from Lee uh, Carraher and talking just uh, really about, you know, how she recharges her ambitious body, mind, and spirit right here on the Ambitious Radio Network. RepairMyCreditNow.com story. Home ownership. It's the American dream. It's a goal you've always hoped to achieve. You've spent countless weekends looking for the perfect house on the ideal block. The rates are low and you've saved enough for the down payment. Unfortunately, now the mortgage company says there's a little hitch. Okay, let's be honest. It's a gigantic, gargantuan hitch. It's your credit. And it looks like your estimated house payment will be (laughs) a lot more www.repairmycreditnow.com. Hello, this is Doug Parker with repairmycreditnow.com. Do you have less than perfect credit, a repo, maybe some late payments, a collection account? Are they being reported accurately? Studies show that over 70% of Americans have inaccuracies on their credit reports. Where do you fit in? Go to repairmycreditnow.com for your free credit report evaluation. And remember, your credit is your future. If you want to get started now, log on now. RepairMyCreditNow.com RepairMyCreditNow.com www.RepairMyCreditNow.com 
All right, we're back on the Ambitious Radio Network. We've got Lee Terraher here, and I'll tell you what. I'm telling you, this may be the most notes I've ever taken on an interview, <laughs> and I'm telling you, I take a heck of a lot of notes on here. So um, with that being said, let, let's jump in. Let's let's talk about what does uh, your your average quote-unquote day look like? What do you do to recharge mm-hmm. your ambitious mind, body, and spirit? What, is, what does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll answer your second question first. So um, what I do to recharge, um, I really subscribe to Tom Rath's Fully Charged book about how to your spirit, your mind, and your body, and um, a few things. So on the spirit side, um, I'm a member of my church, and um, we are, you know, we're active members of our church, and we go every week, and we do stuff. And that is a quiet time, uh, inspirational time, and uh, community time for me. Um also, I have a couple of apps on my phone that help me take a moment through the day. So I have the app Breathe, which uh, clicks on. I have the Apple Watch, and it buzzes me when, and it just says Breathe. And it, you're supposed to take three deep breaths. And I can actually, I have seen my blood pressure or my pulse go down because of it. I'm like, that's a good thing. Hmm. And I also... Um, use um, either Calm, which is an app, or um, Relax and Rest, which is another app, to do, um, which I thought was so hokey. I mean, oh my gosh. So hokey, this meditation stuff. But I can say, you know, even if it's 15, 17 minutes, or 24 minutes is the longest one on being relaxed. um, Wow, that changes everything. Those two things change everything. Um, also in the body is to move and we have these things called walk and talk. So when people come to my company, we buy them a pair of sneakers that they keep in the office and we want them to get out and walk around. So I try to get up and walk around outside at least once during the day. So that's my, well, I guess that's not spirit, but that has helped my spirit. Um, for my body, it's walking around getting and trying to eat well and eating regularly. Um, and I think a lot of us who run companies are like out of time, like we didn't eat. What the heck? Right. <laughs> it's not healthy not to eat um, and to be hydrated. So I work really hard at trying to hydrate myself and eat regularly and well. And my mind, um, I read. I read a lot. <laughs> and I, I really you have to work hard today to get points of view that are not your own because in our channeled world our social media world you know so we we all sort of live in echo chambers now where we're not getting opposing point of views so i work pretty hard at getting opposing point of views into my brain so that i can hope to see things from other people's point of view so i listen to a lot of public radio um a lot of podcasts um that bring me not just my own point of view but somebody else's um, for us, if I guess for my spirit, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do when I started my company was be able to volunteer uh, and be involved with philanthropy. So I sit on three boards right now, three nonprofit boards that are doing great things in the community. Um, one's a college, um, Menlo College in Atherton, um, it's a small business um, arts college. Uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, the Episcopal Cathedral of uh, the California Diocese, and then Public Advocates, which is a nonprofit law firm that um, helps make sure that our our rights are taken care of. And I've done um, a lot of board work over the last 15 years with other organizations, and that really that really brings me a lot of energy. Um, I may not be able to work for them because I have to. You know, I'm working, I own a company, I have responsibilities, but I can bring my talent and my time to organizations that are doing great things in the world. And I find a lot of, I just get jazzed by that. 
you know, that's, that's great information to share. And, you know, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you've got all this, you know, energy and thoughts and how to do things. And, you know, you can almost apply it innocently. You know, I, it's funny. Somebody asked me the other day, they call me, go, Hey, are you busy? I said, Hey, let me say something. I'm always busy. <laughs> that's not even like, it doesn't even matter. You can call me at nine and nine. You can call me at nine in the morning, midnight. It don't matter. I'm busy. The better question is, do you have time for me now? Exactly. And so for you to carve out time, you know, to do the volunteering and, and then to find a way you know, not just to be busy, but to let that energize you and let that feed you and work on things volunteering that, that helps you get to the next level. That's, that's really good. Now, what does an average day look like for you? Do you have like a standard time you try to go to sleep and wake up and get a certain amount of sleep, anything like that? You know, I, um, I seem to wake up at four 30 every day, no matter where I am and no matter how much sleep I've had. So I'm just like going with my body now and I'm just getting up. And um, sometimes I get up and I read or I work or I write because I do a lot of writing. Sometimes I get up um, and I go to the gym. So depending on the day, I just wake up when I wake up. And um, I really don't have to set an alarm anymore because I just sort of wake up at 430, which really is crappy. I'd rather sleep until 6 or 7. I'm not as early as you. Not as early as you, but mine's like 530. I wake up. But I wake up. So, you know, my my body's telling me to get up, so I'm getting up. Um, I try to sleep, you know, because I wake up at 4.30, I try to be in bed by 10. It's not always possible because I am going out uh, doing other things at night. But 10 o'clock um, and try to turn off my phone and only not look at any social media um, after 9 o'clock because it just gets your brain moving. I'm not always successful. I haven't been that successful since the election on that. But um, I'm getting back to the good practice of of not getting involved in what's going on in the world uh, after nine because you really need to create some space before you sleep. That's good. That's really um, good. So I get up, and if I'm in San Francisco, which is where I live, I live in San Francisco, and I spend a week or ten days every month in New York. So if I'm here in San Francisco, I get up, and I either go to the gym or I read or I write. If I'm in a writing mode, I write. Um, I like to work at the office. I'm not a good work-at-home person, so I'll come to the office um, – I'll either take the train or I'll drive to the office. And I like to be here. Um, I like people. I feed off other people. At home, I'm very distracted. It's like, oh, look, I can make brownies. Oh, look, there's a laundry. Oh, look, the cat. You know, I'm not. There's a sock. There's a a stray sock. There's a stray sock. (laughs) It still bugs me, but I don't say it out loud anymore. So um, I just actually recycle the stray socks without anyone knowing. So I'm not going to let my husband listen to this podcast, but <laughs> just so gone. you know, I buy a lot of socks every year. Oh. Um, it's not worth it to me not to be to be stressed about it. So, um, but I like to be in the office. Um, I try to eat with an employee um, once a week if I'm when I'm here, um, and I rotate through the employees about twice a year. Um, I meet with everyone who um, reports to me at least once a week, either by Zoom or in person. And um, I free my day so I can be helpful. I mean, my job is um, to help people do their jobs, not to necessarily do their jobs. So I try to keep some time free. It's, it ends up being very challenging because people want my time. Um, and then I also, every week I try to meet somebody new. So um, reach out to somebody I want to meet, um, help somebody who I don't know, so that my always, you always need to be tending to your network. Um, and because one, I think business draws on a network that is helpful and magnanimous. 
And the bigger your network, the bigger your profile and the bigger your impact can be. Even if you if they're not helping you, maybe you can help them. That's and then I try to get home. Let's see. What am I trying to do? I try to get home for dinner um, at least three times a week with my family. Uh, my son, one son is at college. The other son is at home. He's so busy that, you know, I sometimes I get home. I'm like, where's the kid? <laughs> so he, it's very challenging. He's in high school now. So he's so busy that sometimes uh, it's challenging for us all to get together. But on the weekends, the weekends are family time. And we um, spend a lot of time together on the weekends. Now, you mentioned writing a couple of times. Yeah. Now, is that specific to writing like another book or is that journaling or what is that writing that you're talking about? Um, it's not journaling. So not right now for book. Um, but when I was writing my book, I would write in the morning. Um, I blog on these topics. I get asked to contribute to different organizations on the topics that I'm doing um, for leadership stuff in my company, like where we're going and how to ex- describe things. You can never you know, describe things enough. So... When uh, a topic hits me, I sort of wherever and basically wherever the spirit takes me on what I should be sharing is what I write. Great, great stuff there. So let me ask this. We're kind of wrapping up the show now. So if someone wanted to engage with your company or wanted to reach out to you for consulting or or something to Mm -hmm. that effect, how's the best way to engage with you? The best place to see all the stuff that I do is at my personal website, which is www.leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. And you can get to my company, Double Forte, from there, and you can see my books and my consulting and my, you know, my keynoting and my workshops from there. Um, and my blog is there, too. Um, if you're on Twitter, at Lee Carraher is my Twitter handle, and um, um, I share a lot there. <laughs> And I'll put this all over that. Um, and on Instagram, it's also Lee Carraher. And on Facebook, it's Lee Carraher1. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I want to tell you, I appreciate you carving out some time to come onto the show. I'm not saying that, you know, like just loosely. I truly appreciate the time that our guests invest in coming on because I learn a ton every time I do an interview. And I know our listeners get a lot out of it as well. We get lots of comments back about how much they enjoy it. So thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Doug. What a joy to talk with you. Well, thank you so much. And guys, remember, and gals as well, uh, we want to thank our sponsors, number one, because we couldn't do it without them. And then tune in on Saturdays. That's right, on Saturdays now to Ambitious Radio, where we interview thought leaders and exciting entrepreneurs changing the faces of their organizations. Remember, you can make money or you can make excuses, but you cannot make both. So go out there and be ambitious. Thank you for listening to the Ambitious Radio Network, hosted by serial entrepreneur Doug Parker. Join us weekly as we have engaging conversations with ambitious entrepreneurs and thought leaders on topics that can be applied immediately after listening. Like what you've heard? Listen to other interviews at ambitiousradio.com or subscribe on iTunes.